I think my style is having an immense respect for a lot of different cuisines and, and techniques to the point where I will, you know, stay up late at night and, and study them and try them on my own. But at the same time, kind of learning which rules need to be followed and which ones can be broken. A lot of the combinations with food that we do at Rustic would, you know, maybe piss people off. Fish with fruit is something that a lot of people just never want to try that I love combining it just because of that. <laughs> Breaking the rules as much as we can, but flavor is the most important thing and how we get there doesn't matter. flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. My guest today is Andy Dubrava from Rustic Canyon in Los Angeles, one of the restaurants from Chef Jeremy Fox. Welcome to episode 98 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed American culinary leaders to talk about their path to success, their challenges, and how their background influenced their creative process. Please subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com as you do not want to miss any upcoming episodes. And follow us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Flavors Unknown. In this episode, Chef Andy Dubrava talks about his ways of working with Chef Jeremy Fox, the philosophy of the restaurant Rustic Canyon, some of the iconic dishes on their menu, the importance of working with local farmers, and Andy shares important advice for young cooks. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm very good. And thank you very much for accepting being a guest on the show. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Finally, yes. A little too long, but happy to be here. No, no, it's great. I was trying to remember... When was the time I went to Rustic Canyon? And I think it was, I think it was, in fact, my first trip, you know, just after like, you know, it's still the pandemic, but it was uh, a bit more flexible. So I think I came in June last year in 2021. Were you able to sit inside or? Yes, I was inside. That was right when we were able to reopen the uh, dining room. Yeah. Yeah, so I I came for the the Star Chef event. You know, it was the event was just across, uh, like the street from Rusty Canyon, and I said, okay, I have to I have to uh, taste your food, and and uh, thank you. I know you were not available, or you were not uh, at the restaurant that night, but you were very kind to suddenly have seen like additional dishes coming my way. So thank you, I really appreciate that. Of course. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I remember that, in fact, I had like the, the melon plate from the Wiser family farms that yeah. you had with elderberry and coriander. And then one of your, it seems to be your corner dish, uh, cornerstone dish, like the beets and the beets and berries. 
that was at the time with avocado and quinoa and pistachio. So before we had like the, the the recording today, I checked online and it was interesting to say, I noticed that there were several dishes that were similar. They were not exactly the same one, obviously, because it was a uh, you know a year, but uh, similar to the one I experienced June last year. So there was the the garden gem lettuce. There were the the beets and the berries. There was a cucumber dish, a crudo, the sourdough pasta, mm-hmm. and the chicken. I think a steak and the pork chops. Yeah. So are those dishes? kind of your signature dishes at, at the restaurant? How does it work? You know, I don't really think about it like that. There's a, you know, at the top of the menu, there's always some familiarity. So there's always bread and butter, which, you know, we do our snacks. So we have the almonds and the olives, which, you know, never changes. It's always there. We always have that really fresh, herby lettuce salad on the menu. Never changes. The beets and berries never changes other than if we get a really special berry that can fit into the dish, we'll use it. But beets and berries is, I would say, the staple Rustic Canyon dish, no matter who who the chef is, that dish will be on the menu. Okay. Do you have like a different ingredients that goes with the, so the beet and berries, that's like the main ingredients, but... Like I said, I had avocado, quinoa, and pistachio. Yeah. No. Are they always the same? Okay, that's always so. For, so. That, for that one. For uh, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cucumbers, you know, you see it on the menu now. I think you're just seeing... The season. We're, we're getting into the same season, yeah. You know, I've been there for long enough that I've seen what works. And, you know, we're coming back to cucumbers this year and really just building on what we've learned over the last five years. So it's more... How do we make it a more delicious version of what we've done before? Or let's go in a completely new direction, but we know we're going to be able to get these really great cucumbers. So it's kind of one or the other. We know what products we can count on and we kind of know what to expect. And it really just depends on where we're at in the moment when the menu needs to change. So how often do you change the menu? It's based on the products available? The yeah. Products available? yeah, pretty much fully based on that we print menus every day so we can can change the menu every day it doesn't mean it necessarily does happen but there's at least subtle movement Uh and then probably once a week we'll change three or four dishes okay and i've seen that in you know most of the menus and that you have the farms that you work with that i'm mentioned so why is it important to you to mention this on the menu? Yeah, I mean, it's not a, you know, a secret that money rules everything. And I just, it's important to us to help in any way that we can. At our restaurant, you can eat dinner on a Tuesday night. And then the next day I walk down the street and buy all of those products at the farmer's market. So we're just trying to help the farmers. You know, we like to be as transparent as possible and, uh, not trying to be uh, showy, but really just want people to know that we're using the best quality local stuff that we can possibly get. How have you developed like the, the relationship with, with the farmers? You know, I think it's unique to each one. Some of them I inherited when I started working here and we've just kind of built the friendships and the relationships along the years. And then a couple of other guys have kind of just 
shown up at the restaurant and, you know, we take a chance on them and kind of build from there. We have a really cool shrimp farm that we're working with right now. He has a closed loop sustainable system in a warehouse in downtown LA. What's their name? It's called Transparent Sea. You know, harvested and then at the back door of the restaurant within a couple of hours. It's pretty remarkable. And where's the your pork coming from? Because I know that's your you like the the, the pork, like yes. working with we get our pork from Oliver Woolley. His farm is called Peds and Barnets. They're down in San Diego. I'm just curious. It's like recently that you have been particularly uh, inspired you know, with uh, a locally produced ingredients that maybe you can share with us and, and tell us maybe about the dish that you have used it in. In the springtime, we really try to preserve as much as we can, which is not a new thing, but it gets a lot easier to make things taste good because the produce is so fresh and there's, you know, less and less that you need to, to do to it. So more of my energy is, is focused on preservation. And right now we're We're trying to harness a lot of these fresh flowers that are coming in. Yesterday, I finished harvesting daisy pollen, which, you know, looks just like fennel pollen, but it's mm -hmm. completely, completely different product. How does it taste like? It's kind of a pleasant bitterness, but if you use it in the right way, I think it'll be really interesting just because it's so floral and, and kind of sweet smelling. But, you know, we have the daisies that we're preserving. We have a ton of pineapple weed or uh, wild chamomile that we're saving. So I spent the last two days cleaning and picking these little buds. And now I'm kind of doing my research, trying to figure out the best way to go about it. One way that I know, you know, would work is preserving in honey or, or something okay. with similar properties to honey. But I have enough of the stuff that I could try to a couple different methods. So we have some that are just in a salt brine to see if we can manipulate them into something like uh, capers. But you know, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> That's the tricky part is waiting. And then, you know, if you wait a couple months for your your pickle and then it's not good, it's kind of disappointing. But Yes, exactly. <laughs> you, put, you put a lot of work and energy yeah. and time on it. Yeah, yeah. It happens. It's, it's all part of it. I've seen as well that before the pandemic that you have done monthly farmer and vegetable dinner series. Yeah. Is it something that's that concept that you are going to, to bring back? Yeah. I mean, we toy around with it. It's honestly right now we've gotten to a place where we're just really, really busy and we still haven't fully gotten back to, you know, fully staffed. Yeah. It's everywhere the same, I guess. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, doing those dinners is a lot of fun. It just, it also takes a lot of energy and it takes me away from the kitchen, which a lot of the times right now we don't have that capabilities. It is definitely something I want to do. We did a couple of them, you know, last year and it just, it was a lot. <laughs> so we are kind of pacing ourselves and seeing what the summer is going to bring this year, but it's something that, you know, we, we're always interested in doing. So how are they structured, those, those dinners? We've done it a couple different ways. We have done it where the whole menu is a, you know, a tasting menu based on the farm. We have done just several dishes. We have run regular dinner service side by side with a second oh, wow. menu, which is not a lot of fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
but it's usually a, like a prefix, you know, five to seven course, you know, a little tasting menu kind of thing. I cannot believe that you ran it parallel to like the, <laughs> you know, as the second option to the the yeah. the, the menu that you That's have. Crazy. <laughs> I don't know if we'll do that again, but we have a couple times we tried that. Okay. So generally speaking, how would you describe your uh, style of cooking? I think my style is having an immense respect for a lot of different cuisines and, and techniques to the point where I will, you know, stay up late at night and, and study them and try them on my own. But at the same time, kind of learning which rules need to be followed and which ones can be broken. What do you mean by that? I mean, a lot of the combinations with food would that we do at Rustic would, you know, maybe piss people off. Fish with fruit is something that a lot of people just never want to try that I love combining it just because of that. You're pushing the boundaries. <laughs> well, I think I, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, kind of like breaking the rules as much as we can, but, you know, still making sure that everything tastes good, still making sure that that's really it. Is flavor is the most important thing and how we get there doesn't matter. So how do you make sure that it connects with your, you know, customers? Because at the end of the day, you are restaurants and you need to, you know, sell. How do you balance this research for creativity and pushing the boundaries when it comes to creativity, but as well that it's going to be, to co I mean, to connect and not push people away? Maybe the secret is everything is meant to taste uh, familiar, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's junk food or what, you know, just a very good tomato seasoned properly or pepperoni pizza, everything tastes familiar. I think there's chefs take Mugaritz, for instance. He's trying to create flavors that you've never had before. Maybe not all of the time, but that's a different boundary to try to, to try to push. Whereas I think what we're doing is the process is very unique. The preservation I think that we do is, you know, not unique, but I think we're, we're pushing boundaries, but the overall flavor of a dish is still familiar. You know, a lot of the fermentation and the, you know, harnessing the amino acids just makes things taste more like themselves. MSG is not a bad thing. <laughs> and, you know, people ask me, you know, how do you make a cucumber taste that good? And it's like, maybe the answer has something to do with MSG. Yeah. This is as well translating the vision of, you know, Chef Jeremy Fox, correct, into the concept of, of the restaurant. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the experience that you had working with, with him. Yeah. How would you describe first maybe, you know, Chef Jeremy Fox's approach to food? I moved across the country to work for Jeremy because of how he approaches food. Seven, eight years ago when I, when I came out here, it was because he was you know, doing everything so simply, like really showing up ingredients, which when I was in New York, it felt like a lot of restaurants were kind of playing at that. You know, Jeremy's at the farmer's market choosing his, his lettuces. And in New York, it's, you know, a farmer's salad, but it comes in a plastic bag in a box. So there was this just fantasy that there's this guy out here, like actually doing things farm to table. 
And then I came out here and, it, you know, I was at the farmer's market two, three, four times a week and washing the dirt off the vegetables and getting them into a bowl in the same day. And then to see somebody just strip everything back from a dish and have it really all be about properly seasoned at the perfect temperature on a plate that's the perfect temperature. And for him to just always be able to keep all of us to that standard was something I've never it changed the way that I cook. And I'm guessing simplicity doesn't mean like the easiest way, correct? It can mean whatever you want it to mean. And I think that's irritating to a lot of people, but you know, it could be the, the aesthetics, the visuality or the amount of ingredients that are in the dish or how we word it on the menu. But back when I first started working with Jeremy, it was really just let's find the best ingredient and do as little as possible to let it, let it shine. And how often is he connected to you and working, you know, with about the, like the restaurants or, or uh, on the menu on at Rusty Canyon? At Rusty Canyon, he has pretty much fully entrusted me. He is very invested at Birdie's and When he promoted me to executive chef, it gave him the ability to fully focus on birdies. And he really just trusted me and, and kind of let me go. And, you know, there's there's rules that we follow, like the beets is on the menu. The beets and berries is always on the menu. The lettuces is always on the menu. We always have a chocolate dessert. And I mean, there's standards that he instilled in me that, you know, carry on and Yeah, that's we we talk. We don't see each other all the time, but you know, whenever we need to, we're we're texting back and forth. So, yeah, the the relationship just continues to evolve, and and now it's we've kind of become two unique entities, but with the same exact, maybe not exact, but the same mindset, the same values, and you know, you're getting the same a lot of the times the same produce from the same farms, but with two different perspectives but with those same values you know the seasoning and the temperature and i think that i think we just have a different way of of getting there sometimes but now when you are creating like a, a dish which are different maybe like from you know the staples that you mentioned so beside the produce do you have other sources of inspiration I mean, sure. I, I I joke around about it in the kitchen a lot, but sometimes, you know, the sh the shrimp dish that's on the menu currently, I just wanted everything to be the same color as the shrimp. And <laughs> okay, I think subconsciously we already know what tastes good, so then you're just piecing it together that way. What do you have in this uh, shrimp dish? It starts on the bottom with a, a smoked tomato jam. So you have like yellows and reds and oranges from the little mixed cherry tomatoes. But we call it a bouillabaisse sauce, but it's really like a fennel and, and saffron sauce. So kind of orange. And then the, the shrimp themselves, which have that kind of pink and orangey hue. And we're garnishing with marigold. So, you know, it's just shades, shades of red and orange. And it tastes good. It's just a different way to get there. And and so when you create those dishes, I mean, usually it, do you have like a, you are creating them on your own or this is something that you do in a collaborative process with the rest of the team? It's very collaborative. The line cooks 
have freedom. They have, you know, time to have side projects. My sous chef, Matt, has at any given time three or four dishes that are, you know, his inspiration on the menu. My junior sous chef, Candice, you know, she bakes our bread. She does a lot of our charcuterie. So Matt is more able to complete a dish on his own. I can just kind of taste it and give feedback. And Candice, I'm, I'm kind of teaching her how to create a dish. Okay. Do you have like a practical system in place, you know, for this research on new dishes with them to continue innovating? There's not a, you know, set in stone guideline by any means. I can turn to Matt and say, I really want to take the cucumber salad off. I want you to go to the market and find the replacement and we'll kind of work on it from there. A lot of it is just you know, verbal back and forth. And then we kind of come to the plate together. But like I said, the, the line cooks have input as well. We taste uh, one dish off of every station in the kitchen every day at the beginning of service. We all taste everything and we all talk about it, talk about what we don't like about it, what we do like about it, what we change about it. And it's really like, a safe space, you know, I know that not everybody that's cooking in the kitchen is going to like every dish, but it's important to see those perspectives and as to why they do or do not like something or why they think something is too acidic or, you know, over seasoned. And we try to keep that conversation going constantly. Um, okay. And there's like a, a dish that the team presented to you that somehow surprised you recently? I think that with Matt in particular, a lot of the times I'm surprised by the flavors. And that just comes from, you know, how we grew up. Matt is Filipino and his, his flavors are very acidic, very fully seasoned, which I love. But he gets there in different ways than I would. You know, where I might use like citrus, he would use a vinegar, which can provide the same amount of acidity, but the flavor is completely different. Or he will use black pepper in a way that a lot of people will use chili flake, where it's like kind of tickling your palate because it's so spicy, but in a good way. <laughs> And that's really just, it's really interesting to see that. A lot of the inspiration can come from our family meals too. The cooks get a budget every day so they can go go to the farmer's market, go to the grocery store or whatever they want to do. There's no rules other than you have to make enough food for everybody. And they will put up, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of their downtime will go into family meal efforts. And it's really pretty amazing to see what they can turn out. So you were talking about you know, fermentations and um, just curious if you had, if like, like science play a role in your creative process. Definitely. My dad is a chemist by trade. So I think that there's that kind of scientific curiosity and the analytical approach is, is important to me. It's very important to me that I know why and how something works. While I dropped out of college, I still have that 
that way of thinking about things. And it's been, it's been pointed out to me, you know, in the past, but I think how I got here is I have that, that brain, but I was always drawn to more creative things in my, my childhood and in my past, you know, I was always a, a musician. So I was always trying to create and, and do things that way. What instrument did you play? Like drums or? I was the, I was a drummer. I, okay. you know, I play a little guitar and a little piano, but I was a drummer. Okay. So my, what makes you switch from music to, to cooking? I, I mean, I, the, the full story, which you are more than welcome to use is on my, uh, it's right around my 21st birthday. We had a little too much to drink <laughs> and I was living in New York and we were sledding and built a large ramp and I tore my rotator cuff. Oh, shoot. And it's never really worked since then. Okay. So I can't play anymore. I mean, I, I can, but not, yeah. not in a long sessions and yeah, yeah. Not in a professional means. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what happened after that? So you just, you looked around and say, okay, what should I do now? <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I, I went, I actually went to a music school for engineering and, and recording because I wanted to still be a part of that, you know, which proved useful. But eventually I, I ended up going to culinary school. Cooking was always... In New York? You were? Yeah. I went to okay. FCI, which turned into... It's ICE now or something like this. Yeah, they were ICE. Purchased. Any connection that you can establish between the creative aspect in music and in, in cooking? Sure. I think that's pretty easy, actually. If you learn how to play the drums, you know how you're moving. You can just sit on a drum set and play a beat. And, you know, if you have learned technique, then you're going to be able to make something sound good. It's the same thing <laughs> with cooking. Like if you learn your chops, you know, you learn how to season something, you can make something taste good, you know, anywhere. And then just like being, you know, in a band, if you go to your studio or your, your practice space, you're going to feel more familiar and it's going to be easier to make something that sounds good. Just like if I'm in my restaurant, you know, it's, I have my larder and I have all of my familiar pantry items, you know, we can throw something together in no time. You were mentioning at one moment in the conversation prior that someone asked you, you know, advice, you know, when it comes to uh, getting cooking. So. Let's take the scenario that maybe you you go back in time and then you meet yourself at the beginning of your career of cooking. So what piece of advice would you give yourself? Oh, it's tough. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that I have been very lucky with timing. I don't know how to, how to give that as advice, but I think the biggest thing is trusting your gut. And if you don't like working somewhere, there's no reason to work there. <laughs> A lot of the, my time was spent, you know, resume building. And a lot of people still will do that. You know, you go and work at a restaurant for a year. And even if they treat you poorly, you're going to stay there because you want to keep it on your resume. I don't think that anyone needs to do that anymore. I don't think anyone ever needed to do that. But there are kitchens out there that 
will not treat you like shit. And I think that that's really important for people to know. I have endured some of that and it does not do well for anyone's. Things are changing in the industry, but still slowly, a little bit too slow, I yeah. guess. I mean, we do what we do at Rustic without yelling, without throwing things. We're respectful and friendly and we have fun and we still make Michelin star food. I don't think anyone needs to put themselves through terrible work experiences. I think that that would be advice that I would give to myself. So when you are hiring someone, what are you looking at in the profile of the person? The way that we hire cooks is they do a stage first and then we do a sit down interview. A lot of places are the other way around. I can generally tell after an hour by watching the way that they move and by watching the way that they interact with the other cooks, if it's going to work or not. I think I've had a pretty good track record with that. Okay. We are, like we talked about before, we are all about collaboration. And if somebody is going to, you know, not play into that, or if they are not willing to take advice, if they are not willing to contribute to family meal, it's not going to work out. Those relationships need to be maintained. You know, I have people that have worked here for 15 years <laughs> and people that have worked here for four years. And, you know, we keep it a creative space, a fun space with high standards. And when somebody walks into the kitchen that has never been in there before, you can kind of immediately tell what kind of cook they are by where they're looking around the kitchen and, you know, whether or not they say hello to everybody. Our hires are more based on character than they are on skill. Okay, so I, I'm going to ask you like same question that I ask every chef that comes on the show. If you could give us a suggestion on how a home cook like myself can prepare pork chops, but like Andy Dubrava style, <laughs> something with a unique spin to it. Yeah, I think that the biggest thing with a pork chop is is sourcing. You know, you don't necessarily have to go to the farmer's market, but I would say. Pork is not supposed to be white. <laughs> I would buy it with the bone in. You're buying a pork chop. There's different kinds of pork chops. I would get, just look for nice marbling where it's very obvious the difference between the fat and the meat. The pork that we get in is anywhere from rosy pink to almost a deeper red, depending on the cut. But we take that and uh, we do a very simple kind of dry brine on it, which is just equal parts salt and brown sugar with a little bit of fennel. We coat the outside, let it sit for a few hours, and then rinse it off. And it's hard to make it not taste good after that. So a little quick pre-seasoning on the pork will go a long, long way. From there, it's just a pan fry. We cook it, you know, we do a little rice flour and we cook it in pork fat, which just helps it taste more like pork. A little bit of butter and some herbs, just like a steak. I grew up eating, they were called pork chops, but I it was, you know, probably pork loin, just sliced real thin, cooked until it was dry as hell. And <laughs> I don't find that enjoyable. Sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> 
she's not listening. Yeah. <laughs> Can people cook it on the barbecue as well? I'm just thinking oh, yeah. summer is coming. So yeah, definitely. Okay. The grill is is really fun. We use the charcoal grill pretty constantly, and and with meat, the way that we like to cook it is, you know, obviously a lot of people will already know to keep you know a hot side and a cold side of the grill. You, know, you want to get the nice sear on it, but other than that, you can kind of put it on the cold side of the grill and just move it around every once in a while until it's warm in the middle. And unless you want your pork well done, mm-hmm. if it's warm in the middle, you're good. Okay. Yeah. And what do you serve it with? We do. I mean, it's essentially a, a really thick bird blanc. We make uh, fresh cheese pretty much every day, which we accumulate two or three gallons of, of whey every couple of days. And that's the base for the pork chop sauce. It actually works out really nicely where we don't have a whole lot of leftover anything. But it's whey, which we boil and then emulsify with a lot of butter. Balance the butter with a little bit of white wine vinegar. And that's kind of our base. And then to order, we will make sure it's emulsified. And then we throw in just a whole bunch of fresh herbs I like parsley. We use chives and tarragon. Smoked trout roe, which we get locally. But I think if you're near a, a major city, it shouldn't be too hard to find something like that. I don't know how hard it is to find anywhere, honestly. No, no. Okay. So you, you just like to add it at the time of serving? or? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the pickup is we'll cook the pork, obviously. And then while the pork is resting, we'll rewarm the sauce. And we make little kits with the herbs and the trout roe, some dried currants in there. We'll warm up the sauce and at the last second, throw the herbs in just to sweat a little bit. And it goes immediately right over the fork. The trout roe add uh, a little bit of like saltiness and as well umami character then to, yeah. to the dish. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a subtle smokiness, you know, which is a really fun way to use smoke and then you know the curveballs in there we have like we get really really nice coriander seeds and pickle them which gives a kind of a unique pop when you get you know one of the end coriander seeds that's in each dish and then the dried currants is a little sweetness you know with acidity there and then butter tastes great especially when you balance it with acid We use a really nice white wine vinegar, and it's just nice combined with good quality pork. I mean, you you mentioned the curveball with the coriander seeds. I mean, you got me the curveball with you know the trout roe <laughs> on the on the dish. That, that was that was interesting. I have to try that. I, I get that a lot, and I don't know. I don't see that something. I don't know that I've ever publicized this, but something about me that people don't know is that I have a really hard time eating seafood. Okay. It's not an allergy. It's it's like a mental block. Okay. Mm. So and it's not a t- it's not a taste situation. It's just it's a it's a little taste, a little bit of texture. I had a I lived in New England when I was a kid. Had some bad seafood a few times, I think, and now it's. Uh. Just, I'm, you know, 30 years later, and it's still, it's still sometimes grosses me out a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so what I'm saying, I guess, is back to the the rules that we were talking about is a lot of those rules. I just don't know because I never spent time eating a lot of fish. 
So putting trout roe with pork doesn't seem that strange to me. Okay. You know, people would do it with caviar, but it's just too expensive. So we did it. But it's interesting because we were at the Starchef event not too long ago in Washington, D.C., and we have seen a lot of salmon roe or trout roe, you know, used in combination with uh, things that will not be the most classic, you know, with, you know, with meat. And it definitely gave like a great twist and umami character to, to the dish. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's something fun that we do occasionally is taking, you know, something that at least would be seen as a luxury ingredient and not using it that way. You know, so using caviar in a dish, but just using it as an ingredient as a, you know, the star. It doesn't cheapen the product. It just, you know, maybe goes to show that, you know, everything can be a luxury ingredient if you sell it the right way. Very good. Uh, Chef, thank you very much for your time. I still have to go through the rapid fire question. If yeah. It's okay with you. Well, thank you. Yeah. Next time I come to a place and spend some time in Santa Monica and you are hopefully there. So you and I will be going into a tasting tour in Santa Monica. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to? And you can expand it to other, you know, area of LA if you want to. Yeah. I mean, Bertie G's is, is my most frequented restaurant. I live, uh, I actually, I got a really good COVID deal on an apartment. And I live n right near Birdie G's now. So, oh, yeah. Okay. You know, we don't go as often as we should, but we go a lot. But then top of my list is Dave Barron's Pajoli, which I'm sure you know about. I have not been yet, but I've heard nothing but good things. I frequent maybe not the most luxurious spot, but Hi-Ho Cheeseburger. It's a very good burger spot. It's like a Wagyu slider. It's silly, but it's very good. I think... We would have to go to downtown LA, unfortunately, but my friend John Yao opened his new location for Kato restaurants, tasting new that, and beyond that. Two more. <laughs> yes. I have two more that you can hit in one. If you go to Virgil Village, I actually lived right there. So I think I'm allowed to throw this on the list. There's two things happening. Two people that used to work for me making really good food. Travis Hayden is at Voodoo Wine Bars doing a lot of charcuterie, a lot of pasta. And then my old sous chef, Nestor, and his girlfriend, Elizabeth, have an ongoing pop-up called Mali, M-A-L-L-I, that is a few days a week at Melody Wine Bar, which is right near Voodoo. What is the style of the pop-up? Mali is... Jewish Mexican food. So pretty unique. Nestor is Mexican and his girlfriend is Jewish and they kind of got together really beautifully. And I was able to have it when they first started doing the pop-up and I haven't been back, but that uh, should be on everyone's list there. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? A salty potato chips. Crunchy, salty potato chips. Any kind? Wavy, normal, standard? No, I generally go for the, I think the kettle brand just because okay. it's available out here sometimes salt and vinegar but also that <laughs> burns the tongue so <laughs> it's too often i also love a fried chicken sandwich okay what kind of sauce do you have in it like a hot sauce or on the chicken yeah i like good bread mayo pickle that's it okay 
Yeah. Simple. <laughs> Very good. I had one of the best one. I just came back from Nashville and I got the one uh, from Sean Brock Joyland. He has a fantastic, he has a fantastic fried chicken sandwich there. I will be there in July, actually. So you should go there. Joyland, you should try the, I mean, there's other things on the menu, but their, their fried chicken sandwich is amazing. Great. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? Half my stuff is at the restaurant. There's a, I think it's at the restaurant, but Michael Ruhlman has a charcuterie book that I'm 90% sure it's just called charcuterie. I have the first edition and I know he's come out and said that some of the information is bad, but whatever. It, I feel like I was able to almost teach myself a lot of charcuterie through that book. I recommend that a lot. And the third one? The third one is absolutely Koji Alchemy. Um, yes. Jeremy Lomansky. But yes, Rich and Jeremy, Koji Alchemy, had a cool experience with them a long time ago where Rich actually came to Rustic and showed me how to grow Koji before you know everybody was talking about Koji. And okay. it really shaped the way. Yeah. And then obviously... Yes, obviously. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> Five copies behind me here, but on vegetables, I think changed the way that a lot of people look at food. And yeah, I'm yeah, it's a fantastic book. Happy to have been a part of it. And I had I had Jeremy Omansky on uh, on the show, and uh, yeah. I had the chance as well to go to Larder in uh, Cleveland and spend time with him. It's, uh, it's, a, great, it's a great I've, guy. I've been able to taste some of his stuff because uh, Jeremy. Uh, Fox will bring it back when he goes to visit Ohio. So I've had some of his item, his larder stuff, but I've not, I've not been. But yeah, he actually he <laughs> told me to come on the podcast with you <laughs> a long time ago. Okay, know, I think back before you had ever asked. So okay, so maybe maybe we can do another episode one time oh, yeah. with uh, cool, yeah. with with both of you for sure. What's the, your biggest pet peeve in the kitchen? Loud noises. <laughs> uh, specifically, the ice machine. If I'm standing right here expediting, the ice machine is five feet to my left. And I think in most restaurants, it's pretty standard to just let it, you know, slam shut. And that's, you get one. And <laughs> it, so new employees learn very quickly not to slam the ice or anything for that matter. But. Yeah, we really like when we're grooving, when we're busy, it's pretty silent in the kitchen. Last one, beside the, the classics, you know, like what condiment spices, sauces, dressing do you have on hand at home? Chick-fil-A sauce. Chick-fil-A sauce. Okay. This is like very unique to right now, but that was the most interesting answer that I have for you. Okay. Take you over to my fridge. It's empty right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm funny. not I'm not here very much. My my wife is she travels a lot for her, you know, she cooks too and she's in Montana right now. So Oh wow. When she is away, I am not home very much. I'm I spend a lot of time at work. So Okay. There's not a whole lot going on here right now. <laughs> I would say that my favorite spice I think would be fennel pollen. Fennel pollen. Okay. Where do you put it that on at home when you cook? Everything. Everything. Yeah. Okay. No, like, you know, white meats, you know, chicken and that kind of thing. It's great with pork. It's great with spice. 
It's great with black pepper. We use it a lot at the restaurant. <laughs> we use it a lot at home. Everybody likes fennel pollen. Chef, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. You have been very generous with with your time. So thank you. And I'm I'm glad that we were finally able to, you know, to have the recording. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening today. I really love my tasting experience at Rustic Canyon in Los Angeles. Please share this episode and the podcast Flavors Unknown with a friend or a colleague. You can pre-order wherever you buy book online. My upcoming book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, based on 50 of my conversations on this podcast with American acclaimed chef, pastry chefs and bartenders. Next week, my guest will be Chef Maria Mason from Boca Tacos y Tequila in Tucson. She was also a participant of the Bravo Top Chef Season 18. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.